Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, let's recap. The day before the conversation that we have in our gospel today, Jesus had miraculously fed a crowd of well over 5,000 people. All from the five loaves and two fishes a young boy had brought with him. Afterward, Jesus stayed behind on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, needing time alone, away from the crowds, and he sent his disciples back in their boat to Capernaum without him. But in the middle of the night, he had miraculously gone out to meet them, walking on the water. And then they all came together to Capernaum. When the crowds made their own way back the next day, they were surprised to find that Jesus had beaten them there and asked him about it. But Christ knew their hearts and what they were really after. They wanted more free stuff. They liked his miracle working so much that they had in mind to make him their king. But he told them to change their thinking and and focus less on their material and physical wants and needs and focus more on the one who gives all good things. In contrast to the bread that they had received and eaten up, and also in contrast to the bread that their Israelite ancestors had eaten in the wilderness, made from the manna God gave them every day, Jesus declared himself the true bread from heaven that gives life to the world. And he also clearly stated that he himself, as the Son of God the Father, would raise up from the dead on the last day all who look to him and put their trust in him. But it wasn't that last really huge claim that got these Jewish Galileans grumbling. Instead, it was the whole from heaven part. They had a lot of trouble accepting that this man, even though he worked miracles, that this man, whose family they were familiar with, could in any sense have come down from heaven when otherwise everything that they could see about him was earthly. But there was more going on than that. Their murmuring covered some much deeper issues that Jesus was was only too happy to expose for them. So let's read again our gospel for the day, John 6, 41-51. So the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They asked, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? So how can he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. I am not saying that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He is the one who has seen the Father. Amen, amen, I tell you. The one who believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may eat it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, Jesus is the bread of life. Not necessarily the bread you want, but very much the bread you need. But his own people, people who knew him and knew his family, people who had not only witnessed, but had personally benefited from his miracle working, they grumbled against the idea. On the surface, they made it sound like a practical idea or objection. Jesus cannot have come from heaven because we know that he had earthly parents and everyone knows how that works. But even setting aside their ignorance of his conception by the Holy Spirit and and the truth that Joseph was really only Christ's stepfather, this was really not the essence of their objection. And Jesus knew it just as he knew they were murmuring against him. What the people were really saying with their grumbling was that they did not want to listen to Jesus and that they did not like what he was saying because the claims he made on them were unwelcome and uncomfortable. Instead of offering them an an option-rich buffet of works to do and pieties to project as their religious teachers did, Jesus made a single and exclusive offer. Put your whole trust in me and have eternal life. Or don't, and you won't. And instead of a focus on the things of this material world and the desires of their flesh, he told them to focus on things beyond this life as he offered them a heavenly diet of grace and faith. Ultimately, What it all boiled down to was pride. They thought they knew better who Jesus was. They thought they knew better what they needed. And they thought they knew better than Jesus what he should be doing for them. But he wasn't cooperating. And so they murmured against him. And so Jesus corrected them sharply. Stop grumbling among yourselves. Earlier they had brought up the example of their forefathers in the wilderness, and Jesus undoubtedly wanted them to remember how much grumbling the Israelites had done against Moses and how God always ended up teaching them a harsh lesson as a result. Stop grumbling meant don't turn away from God and His gifts in pride as your forefathers did, and suffered for it. And while most of us here do not count any Israelites or Galileans as our ancestors, Christ's rebuke applies to us today just as much as it did when he first spoke it. In fact, one might even argue that we grumble even more, and for worse reasons than those people in Capernaum that day. Like them, Many today grumble against Jesus because they find him too familiar. 
They have trouble accepting His claim to a special place in our hearts and lives and in in the world and in eternity because they think that they know too much about Him. Too much that, that brings Him down more to their level or lower. And tragically, this is not something that just happens with people outside the church. Many raised within it grow up and have these same thoughts. Perhaps it's from years of sermons and Sunday school lessons that present Jesus as as nothing more than an always smiling neighborhood buddy who wants little more than for us to be happy and well-adjusted. Kind of a Galilean Mr. Rogers. Or maybe they reject a Jesus who's who's too familiar to them as as the inspiration for, for centuries of whatever bad things in society they happen to oppose and blame the Christian church for. It could also simply be that in this culture that is always so fascinated with what is new, that they grumble against Jesus because He's so associated for them with a backwards and unexciting past. Some today also complain because they don't like Christ's claim on their lives. A Jesus they can visit for holidays or, or pray to when things are really bad. Well, well, Him they can like. But a Jesus who calls them to deny themselves and pick up their crosses and follow Him, one who defines love for Him as keeping His commands, one who actually has the gall to judge their choices and lifestyles, well, Well, that kind of Christ they don't want around. Others grumble because they want to contribute to their own salvation. And Jesus tells them it does not and cannot work that way, not for them or for anybody. Maybe maybe they'll still give God some credit, maybe even most of the credit, but, but they insist that their good works or their sincerity or, or even their decision-making play, must, just has to play a role in gaining them God's favor and a place in heaven. But since Jesus clearly teaches that it is God's grace and grace alone that saves, well, they're not happy with Him. A similar complaint comes in response to the exclusiveness of the gospel. They resent Christ's claim that no one comes to the Father except through Him and through Him alone because they, in their great wisdom, simply do not think it's fair to exclude the sincere followers of other gods and religions or even to exclude godless people that they happen to like. And of course, there is the grumbling of many, so like the bread and miracle-seeking people of Jesus' day, people who want to keep their focus on, on their material needs and desires and the things of this world, and they expect Him to do the same. Maybe they want wealth and prosperity, or fame and popularity, Or just simpler things like an easier life and better food on the table. Sometimes they even pray hard for things like cures or or improved relationships. But in the end, they are disappointed when they find out that Jesus doesn't just want to be their friend who makes them happy, 
and gives them the stuff that they want for this world. So they grumble because he insists on telling us to center our lives on him and to focus our hearts and minds on the spiritual and eternal. Now chances are good that as I listed and described those various examples of grumbling, that you not only thought of other people you know that that might apply to, but you realized that at least one of them is something you yourself are guilty of. I certainly am. And whether we call it weak faith, actual unbelief, or sin, in every case it is wrong. It is deadly. And we need to stop it. More importantly, we need forgiveness for it. So thank God that in the very person we grumble against, we find the pardon that we need for our complaints and unbelief. Jesus tells the complainers among his contemporaries and among us that the one who believes in him will have eternal life. In this instance, he doesn't give all the details about how all that is possible, but he says more than enough. And what's important is that we trust it, rely on it. He makes a, a broad reference when he, he talks about giving his flesh for the life of the world. And that is exactly what he did about a year after this, when he allowed himself to be arrested, falsely tried, unjustly condemned, pitilessly abused, and ultimately crucified. Why? Not because he was too unaware to avoid it or too weak to resist, because that suffering and death was Christ's great purpose in coming down from heaven. He came to seek and to save the lost. And he saved us, each and every sinner. Saved us lost sinners by offering his life and blood in payment for each and every sin. On the cross, he canceled out all our guilt and transferred his own righteousness to us. And with his resurrection from the dead on Easter morning, he secured for every believer the guarantee we need that we too, as redeemed, restored, forgiven, justified saints, we too will rise as he did and enjoy eternal life with God in heaven. And so he encourages us here to fill up on this good news of God's grace, to eat the bread of life that is Christ himself. We don't need to strain hard to understand what that means. To eat here means to believe in him. But this idea of eating that Jesus uses actually teaches us a great deal about belief. In the first place, it emphasizes the, the internal over the external. True faith in Jesus is not about outward things like church membership or, or ethnic background or the works that we do. 
but it is rather about inward trust in the heart. And and the bread that he keeps referring to pictures life-giving nourishment. Just as physical food keeps our bodies alive and growing, so the spiritual food that is the gospel creates and sustains growing faith. And eating, like believing, has to be complete and, and total. Just as you can't, say, chew something up and spit it out and still be nourished by it, so you can't believe to a point and stop short of actual trust in Jesus and still be saved. And of course, neither eating for your body's health nor believing for your soul's salvation are things that are done just one time and that's it. You must continue them all your life up until the end. But here Jesus is doing so much more than just giving a good metaphor for faith. He also gives us a multitude of reasons why we should not grumble, but instead be happy with and and eagerly eat the bread of life from heaven that is Christ our Lord. From heaven and all the references to His Father make it clear that it is God the Father who named Jesus His Son as as the one and only mediator between God and men and, and placed Him on this earth as its one and only Savior. This role was, was not something that Christ chose for Himself, and, and His authority was not something that He merely assumed, took for Himself. No, it was His by right from eternity and by the will of the Father in heaven. And in addition, that that Jesus would come to earth and teach the people was the testimony of the Lord's prophets. It wasn't just Christ's word or anyone's individual experience that this faith in Him was based on. Also, Jesus affirmed that He is the only one who can bring us or anyone to the Father. No one else has seen the Father except Him. And nothing else we might ever find Nothing earthly or material will last or gain us what we need for eternal life. Only what we receive from God in Jesus does. The people who ate bread miraculously provided still all eventually died. But those who eat the bread of life that is Christ will live forever. And when we come to and trust in Jesus That means that He will raise us up. He will. Body and soul together on the last day. But that does not mean that eternal life is just something that we have on order to expect someday. Instead, He tells us that the one who eats the bread, the one who believes in Him, has eternal life now as a present possession. There is nothing uncertain or conditional about it. And similar to the way that the the bread Jesus broke the previous day and, and offered ended up feeding a multitude of many thousands, so also the bread of life is not just for some, but is for everyone. No one is excluded from its offer, even though some choose not to eat it. Jesus gave Himself 
physically for the entire world's salvation, body and soul. Which means that the redemption and life Jesus offers are not mere spiritual abstractions, ideas, concepts without any ties to the world that we know and experience. No, they are actual, physical, historical, and eternal realities. Flesh and blood, body and soul, life and death and life again. And it means that all of this, everything that Jesus was, is, did, and does, all of this is for you. To gain you forgiveness, eternal life, and a place with Him in paradise. So yeah, eat. Eat up and eat nothing else. This bread of life is what will sustain and strengthen us through all of life's troubles, and it will supply us everything we need for a life of service, even as it lasts us until the last day. Anything that we might presume to contribute to our spiritual diet would be at best empty calories and sawdust, more likely contamination and poison. Yes, some find the bread of life distasteful, We find it delicious. Some find it worrisome. We find it wholesome. Some find it maddening. We find it nourishing. Jesus is the bread we need. And you want nothing more. And now, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good, nothing else will satisfy. Believe in Jesus. Eat this bread and live forever. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.